We are uh, continuing our series on the book of Revelation this morning. And uh, I want to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's word. A reading from the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that you would send your spirit to work in our hearts by your word. And we pray that we would hear what you say to the church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're now uh, in our second uh, sermon in our series on the book of Revelation. Uh, we're not, we, we know over the next few weeks we're going to work through chapters 2 and 3. And then we're going to pick up the pace and go at a little faster clip through the rest of the book. Uh, But we're slowing down uh, to focus on this because um, we see particular relevance in each of the messages Jesus has for the seven churches of Asia Minor that the chapters two and three are addressed to. And if you weren't here with us last week or you've forgotten everything that was said, uh, Revelation is a book that was written to a beleaguered and battered community. And it was written to help them endure. And we, as we talked a little bit about last week, uh, the type of literature that Revelation is, is what's called apocalyptic. And it comes from the Greek word apocalypse, which doesn't mean disaster. It means unveiling. That in Revelation, we have the unveiling of unseen realities, both future and present, that change the way we look at ourselves and our world. And as we mentioned last week, Revelation is full of symbolism, but it focuses primarily on one thing, and that is that Jesus ultimately wins. And as we mentioned at the end of the sermon last week, this vision we have of Jesus in chapter one is Jesus among the seven lampstands, which we are told are the seven churches of Asia Minor that these letters and messages are addressed to. And we said the risen Jesus stands in the midst of his church. And so the question is, what does the risen Jesus do while dwelling in the midst of his church? And that leads us to chapters two and three, which we'll be looking at over the next seven weeks. It gives seven messages to these seven churches And by the way, they all got to read each other's email. Everybody got to hear what Jesus was saying to each of them. Because as we saw last week as well, it's for all the church. And uh, if if you want to know a little bit of background about sort of the structure of these, because if you notice as we go through them, they kind of all follow the same uh, plot line. 
And uh, in many ways, on the one hand, they're like the prophetic oracles that you find in the Old Testament, like in Amos and Ezekiel. But we can also see that they bear a resemblance to what were called royal edicts in the ancient world. So you'd have Persian kings and Roman governors that would send a message to a local municipality. And the structure is strikingly similar. It included praise. It included criticism. It began with, I know or I have known about you. And you see all of this here in these letters. And the reason why I bring that up is, as odd and as weird as the book of Revelation is, Jesus is using forms of communication that first century listeners would have been very familiar with. And you might be asking, well, why is it to just these seven churches? There were more churches in Asia Minor. We read about them in the book of Acts. There was the church at Colossae. There was a church at Lystra. There was a church at Miletus, church at Derby, so on and so forth. But as we mentioned last week, seven is the number of completeness in the ancient world. And so this is representative of the entire church. And the reason this is important is what we're going to discover is it turns out the struggle of these churches are the struggles of every church throughout history and throughout the world. So it's worth listening to. And then some of you, you know, you're very uh, particular about interpreting the book of Revelation. You're like, I wonder if he's going to talk about how all of them are addressed to the angel of the church in such and such. And uh, you know what? I'm not going to do it. No, I'm kidding. Scholars do debate about this. Like, what is this referring to? And I just want to say, don't get hung up and sidetracked by this. Because whatever it means, whatever is said to the angels is meant for the ears of the church community. Because all of them end with this line. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What we have in Revelation 2 and 3 is like a report card for each of the seven churches. And I'm just going to give you a warning ahead of time. Some of this will get really uncomfortable. And I think it's important to, uh, to notice something here. Isn't it interesting that the first revelations John receives after the beautiful vision he gets in chapter 1 are a bit of house cleaning for the church. And I think that's important for two reasons. First, the church's tendency is to always point its fingers at the outside world. Look at what they're doing out there. Look at all that's going on. How terrible. And Jesus says, "Uh, how about we start with you? And that's an important part of understanding real Christianity is that Christians are supposed to be the first to repent, the quickest to acknowledge our weaknesses. And that's actually a good thing. Jesus begins with saying, how about we start with you? But here's the second reason I think that's important. We tend to think that suffering is the greatest danger to us. And make no mistake, suffering sucks. It's terrible. It's awful. I hate it. But it's actually our sin that poses the greater, greatest danger to us. Sin deceives. Sin hardens. Sin ruins. And Jesus doesn't want that for his people. The message we're looking at this morning is the first one. And it probably would have been the first one on the postal route 
uh, that these seven churches lay in in the ancient world. And it is the message to the church at Ephesus. Now, if you don't know anything about Ephesus, uh, it was the most influential of the seven cities that Jesus addresses. It's a cosmopolitan, world-class city. It's the capital of the province of Asia. Culturally diverse. It was wealthy. It was highly religious. In fact, it was one of the major financial centers of the ancient world. There were huge monetary deposits in its banks. Uh, It was the most important seaport on the western coast of Asia. It had an amphitheater that could seat 24,000 people. This is a lot in that day. It was home to the Pan-Ionian Games, which was second only to the Olympic Games in Athens. And it was also home to the worship of the fertility goddess Artemis, as the Greeks called her, or Diana, as the Romans called her. In fact, uh, this temple that uh, that was in Ephesus was built on a platform that was twice the size of a football field. Huge. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. And the church at Ephesus was one of the most influential of the seven churches. And in fact, you could make a good argument that it was one of the most influential churches in early Christianity and maybe in all of the history of Christianity. It was founded by Paul when he returned on his missionary journey. He spent two years, two and a half years there teaching and instructing. Uh, his, His work was so impactful and fruitful that he had to get out of town because people stopped buying the little silver shrines that were to be given to Artemis or Diana. And so a riot broke out. You can read about that in Acts 19. Uh, It was a community that was nurtured by Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, It was later pastored by Timothy. Uh, Tradition says that he was murdered. And then John stepped in, according to tradition, and took over responsibility. And now this John is given this message for this influential church in this influential city of the ancient world. And it comes from Jesus By his spirit. And note, it uses images we've already seen in chapter 1. They're just intensified. Jesus doesn't just stand in the midst of the lampstands, his churches. He walks among them. Inspecting, examining. And just like in every letter, he says, I know. Because Jesus knows. He knows you, he knows me, he knows us. He knows the good and the bad, he knows the big and the small, he knows the public and the private, he knows. You know, often I hear people say things like, what would a guest say about your church when they came to visit? And I love that question, it's a great question. It's an important question, one we should tend to. But you know, there's a more important one. What would Jesus say when he's walked around And visited us about who we are as a church. And this morning what I want to do is I want to propose that we look at this. This message to the church at Ephesus like a health checkup. Tests have been run. And now we get to see the lab results. The medical record. The patient chart. This is a health checkup. And so I want to begin with saying what is the diagnosis that Jesus makes of this church And I think we'll see that it has a lot to say to us. Now, it's important to recognize that Jesus begins with some praise. Like the chart looks good. He says, I know your deeds. That is your works. 
This was a, a very busy community, buzzing with spiritual activity. They probably had a lot of ministry programs, things that were well run. And this was probably the type of church, by all accounts, that the experts would want to study and see the principles of successful church planning and church revitalization, right? This is, this is Ephesus. This is what it's like. And he says, I know your hard work. That is your toil. So people in this community are really pushing themselves. They're not lazy. They're not apathetic, right? They're active and they're busy. And then Jesus adds, I also know your perseverance, your patient endurance, You're not the kind of people who give up in the face of hardship. You're willing to endure suffering for the sake of your loyalty to me. And that's really important because Ephesus was the meeting place of many different religions. And following Jesus actually came at a cost in that world. They were likely having to resist in certain seasons the pressure of the emperor cult. Who wanted you to pledge your allegiance to Caesar. They refused to participate in the worship of Artemis and Diana, willing to suffer the consequences for that. Social, political, economic. They knew what it was like to be hated, and they endured. And then Jesus adds, I know that you can't tolerate evil. You're committed to purity. This isn't a weak need, compromised community, morally or ethically speaking. And then he even adds, I know you have tested those who've claimed to be apostles and are not and have found them false. Just like in every era of the church, there's supposedly enlightened teachers coming in with new teachings to peddle, improving, updating Christianity. He mentions the Nicolaitans in verse 16. Iron's going to talk about that next week. But the Ephesians weren't falling for it. This isn't a gullible group of people. They're doctrinally discerning. They know how to spot fakes and imposters. They they know how to see the charlatans and the false teachers. They're committed to orthodoxy. They're not going to settle for counterfeit Christianity. And they're heeding Paul's words that he gave to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He said, look, some wolves are going to come in and they want to devour the sheep. This community was not letting that happen. And this, by the way, was the Ephesian church's reputation for many, many years. Uh, At the beginning of the second century, uh, Ignatius of Antioch uh, wrote these words about the Ephesian church. You all live according to the truth, and no heresy has a home among you. Right? I mean, these are some amazing and praiseworthy things. I mean, the chart looks great. This is a model church in so many ways. And yeah, there's no perfect churches, but you know what? This one was getting five-star reviews on Google and Yelp in the ancient world. They were spiritually active. They were courageous. They had moral integrity. And they had doctrinal discernment. But something significant is off. Jesus says... But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's keeping it real. 
That's what we want, right? Authenticity. We want to keep it real. We want to tell it like it is. Jesus is telling it like it is. He says, I see your activity. I see your courage. I see your discernment. But I also know the real condition of your soul. You've left the love you had at first. You've left love behind. Jesus not only sees our behaviors, he sees beneath our behaviors, right to our hearts. He knows our true spiritual condition. And he gets personal. And he gets personal because a personal relationship is always his concern. See, so many times when we feel the approach of Jesus, we say, but, 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 but I'm working hard for the church. Yes, but why? But, but, but I'm suffering hard for the faith. Yes, but why? But I'm fighting hard for the truth. Yes, but why? Is it coming from a place of love for Christ? Overflowing into love for other people? Or is it coming from someplace else? See, this isn't down on activity. They're praised for their hard work. But it is up on love. This isn't down on ethics. They're praised for their integrity and faithfulness. But this is up on love. This isn't down on doctrine. They're praised for their doctrinal discernment. But it is up on love. And Jesus is saying, somehow, in all your busyness, and all your carefulness, and all your discernment, you've left love behind. You've forsaken the love you had at first. How did that happen? Well, we aren't told exactly. But maybe, maybe they began to think that the core of spirituality was being busy. Or maybe they began to love being right more than they, learned, they loved being loving itself. Maybe other loves began to come into their hearts and crowd out the love that they had at first. And it probably didn't happen all at once, but little by little, they wandered away, they left behind. And when you wander away from love, hearts grow hard. And so Jesus has some hard words in this diagnosis for this church. You know, these are hard words to hear if we're listening. But as, like, as we like to say a lot around here, sometimes it takes a hard word to make a heart soft. These hard words of Jesus are intended for our good. Nancy Guthrie, who I mentioned last week and who's written a book on, on, on the book of Revelation, says, We have incredible powers of self-deception and denial. Jesus sees us and knows the truth about us and that we most need to know. And because he loves us and is bent on blessing us, he is willing to tell us the truth. Even though that might be uncomfortable for us to hear. You know, love is one of the vital signs of a living church. And without love, as one person put it, the church's work is lifeless. The importance of love pulses all throughout the New Testament. What does Paul write in 1 Corinthians 8? He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's not down on knowledge. 
He, he's dishing out a whole bunch of it. But what he's saying, if you got knowledge without love, it just makes you proud. But love turns you towards others in order to build them up. What does John write in his first letter that we looked at? Was it last fall? I don't know. He says, love is one of the signs of new birth. It's a mark of the children of God. And going back to Paul again, he has that awesome image in 1 Corinthians 13 that you can have all this stuff. You can even prophesy. You can do miracles, but without love, you are a clanging symbol. It's like brass not playing a song. It's just noise. Do we have ears for the words of Jesus to us? Are we open to what he identifies in us? Or uncovers in us? Or points out in us that needs to change? Receiving his diagnosis is the first step to spiritual renewal and change. That's the diagnosis. He's saying you got a bad case of lovelessness. And this is a big problem because the second thing I want to look at and briefly is the prognosis. The prognosis is very disturbing because what Jesus, like any good doctor does, is he tells you what could happen if you don't take the diagnosis seriously. Verse 5, Jesus tells them, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Do you know what Jesus is saying? To this church. To us as a church. If you don't deal with this, the lights are going to go out. The lampstand will be removed. Think about this. How many churches have become shells of their former selves? Maybe they still have activity, but no light. And no light because no love. No love for Christ. No love for each other. No love spilling out into love of neighbor. This has happened again and again and again throughout history. And make no mistake, this could happen to Grace Presbyterian Church. And it would be a sign of Jesus' faithfulness to snuff us out. His church overall will prevail. But any particular church that loses love, lampstand is going to be removed. You know why? Because it just becomes lifeless routine. It just becomes joyless drudgery. It becomes nitpicking legalism. It becomes cold doctrinalism. The church has no light without love. And only when its love burns can its light shine. As John Stott put it. Now, what's the prescription that Jesus gives us in this text? Well, this is what he says, the first half of verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. You got the diagnosis, you got the prognosis, you got the prescription. And I want to just highlight two words in this one one, uh, phrase here. Remember. Do you remember what it was like when grace first grabbed hold of your heart? Do you remember that? Do you remember when you were overwhelmed by what God had done for you? Do you remember when loving him felt natural? Do you remember that? Remember, Jesus says, remember. 
And then repent is the second word. You know what repent means? It means make a U-turn. Turn around and go the opposite way. Which if other loves have crowded into our heart would mean turn away from work, from success, from ministry activity, from anything and everything else as your first love. And this is important because I don't think what Jesus is saying is, boy, girl, you better, you better conjure up an emotional experience or I'm going to come and take the lampstand away. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is I am calling you to forsake your love of those things which have caused you to forsake your love of me. Forsake your love of those things which have caused you to forsake your love of me. I mean, we could spend all like weeks, weeks unpacking this, but I want us to get our minds around this one thing. Many of us sometimes feel like the pilot light has gone out in our spiritual lives. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, oh no, I can't, I can't get a fire stoked here anymore. How do you reignite the pilot light when it's gone out? How do you reignite love in your heart when it feels like it's died down? And there's only one way. It's by exposing it to a flame. The way your heart, the way my heart will be reignited with love for Christ and then therefore love for people is by exposing it to the flame of God's love. And this is so awesome. I, I, I made up a phrase. It's called the Ephesian matrix. Okay. And what I mean by that is there are multiple letters in the New Testament that intersect with the Ephesian community. You have the book of Ephesians, right? You have first John that's written to that same uh, segment of the population of the ancient Near Eastern world. And you know what's crazy? It's how often they attend to this theme of love. But do you know where they always begin? Not with our love for God, but with his love for us. Ephesians, how does Paul come out of the gate in that book? Right? With bursting forth with praise, talking about the God who set his love upon us Before the foundation of the world. Who has predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters. How does 1 John deal with a community that's losing its way? In the Ephesian matrix? He says things like this. In this is love. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. And in those words we say over and over again in our community, we love because he first loved us. Do you know what what John is doing again and again? He's doing it in Ephesians, doing it in 1 John, and it's happening in Revelation, is exposing your heart to the flame of God's love. John Stott writes, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough to it for sparks to fly on us. Jesus doesn't just leave us here without any incentives. And there's two that I want to close with. One is kind of embedded in the text as it fits into the book of Revelation and the whole Bible. And the other is said specifically when he mentions the tree of life. I want you to consider these two things because they come together at the end of the book of Revelation. Do you know the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage? And all throughout the middle, the relationship between God and his people 
is often likened to a bride and a groom. It's this pervasive theme. And what we find in the Old Testament is God wooing his people to himself into covenant relationship with him. But over and over and over again, they run after other lovers. And man, there is some graphic imagery about this in Ezekiel 16 and other places like the book of Jeremiah. So God has to woo her back again. There's this emotionally charged language in like Jeremiah 2 where God is calling his bride back to himself. And then you have Hosea the prophet who plays the part of a betrayed husband wooing his bride back as an enactment of God's pursuit of his beloved. Why is this important? Because you're not going to hear these words in Revelation right if you don't understand this background. You know what Jesus is doing in this passage? He's wooing the church back to himself. And the whole book of Revelation is headed towards this end, this celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what's coded in this text as it fits into the whole book of Revelation and the whole storyline of Scripture. But here's something specific that Jesus says, and it's a promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know what else is found in the beginning and the end of the Bible? The tree of life. It's there in creation in the garden and it's there in new creation in the middle of the city of God. And you know what the tree of life represents? All the goodness and joy that life with God offers. Sin blocked the way to it. But now the way is blown wide open through the blood of the lamb. He was pierced that we might enter this paradise. Which is why he says to the thief on the cross, he says, remember me, remember me. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't simply speak commands and warnings. He gives good reasons for obeying them. He's saying, don't you want this? Fellowship with me, life with me. And these two themes of marriage and the tree of life, they come together at the end of the book of Revelation. And this is how it sounds. John is given this vision of God's people as the holy city, the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jesus is preparing his church for this through these words. And then God sends John a messenger who says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he's taken to this high mountain. He sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, filled with the glory of God. And he gets this rich description of its walls and its gates and its foundation. I mean, the symbolism is overwhelming, but we are told there's no temple because everywhere is sacred space. The presence of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb fill everything. And there's no sun or moon because the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. And then John sees a river on either side of which is the tree of life. And we are told the tree of life is for the healing of the nations. This is the beautiful vision at the end. The world, the way it was meant to be, the world, if we're honest, the way we want it to be. Intimate fellowship with God. Sin gone forever. Intimate fellowship with one another. Community as good as it gets. The love of God 
reordering everything. Jesus' words to us this morning aren't setting us on a course of working for our salvation. No, no, no. He's wooing his bride back to his heart. And he's holding forth a vision of a yet unseen future that will one day be our experience. And he wants you to taste that now. Jesus is preparing his bride for this kind of life. He who has an ear to ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your faithful pursuit of us and that you love us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. And you do so because you want to heal and mend and make new. And so, God, we come remembering what it was like when grace first grabbed a hold of our hearts. And for those of us for whom that has not yet happened, would you make that happen today? And we ask for your grace and strength to do a U-turn, to forsake the love of things that are causing us to forsake the love of you. And would you do this by drawing us close to the flame of your love that our hearts might be reignited? We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.